I'm going to ask you to say with me our memory verse for today. It is found in Romans chapter 3. It's verse 21 and the first part of verse 22 from the NIV. If you have not received yet a 3 by 5 card with our verses for the next four weeks written on it, you may get one there in the book table in the back after the service. There are also some extra outlines for this morning's message. We did not put them in the bulletin this week because last week I only got through the introduction. And so we felt that uh, perhaps you would keep those outlines and bring them with you again this week. The outline is very simple, though, and you'll be able to follow along even if you don't have a copy of it. Let's say together Romans 3, 21 through 22a. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known. This righteousness, excuse me, I left out a very important phrase, didn't I? What is that phrase? The law and the prophets testify. All right, let's go on from there now. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The reason that's such an important phrase is that uh, it says in the first part of that that this is a righteousness from God that's apart from the law, but the law, as well as the prophets, testify to it. And that is the theme of Romans. Actually, this verse is a beautiful summary of the entire book. In fact, there are a few verses in the Bible in which you could find a better summary of the whole gospel than in this particular uh, section that we've memorized for today. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Well, let's uh, take our Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1 as we return to our theme which we began last week. I'm going to read verses 22 through 25. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Remember, that is very specific. The preposition the is there in the original. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. We have traced through scriptures this theme of the lie and we have found that it actually historically goes back before the creation in Genesis to... Satan, for he is the one who originated the lie, when he said, I will be like the Most High. He felt he could be like God and be independent from the true God, and therefore he was cast out of heaven. That was the lie that Eve believed when she was deceived by the serpent in the garden. For the serpent said to her in part, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, if you do this, you can be independent of God and can make up your own mind what is right and wrong. We have seen also that prophetically the lie will be personified 
in the tribulation period in the future in the person of the Antichrist. When men turn away from the truth, they are inevitably turned to the lie. The lie may be defined in our terms today as humanism. And last week we tried to show you how deceitful humanism is and how pervasive it is even in the thinking of many of us who love the Lord. The reason for this is that we are bombarded from every side these days with humanistic thinking. Even Christians, those who profess to be Christians, uh, have a problem understanding some of the issues involved. I'm reminded of a conversation that was held in the White House with President Jimmy Carter in which one of the people present said, Mr. President, in view of the fact that at least 20% of the American people are Christians, why is it that in the last three years of your administration you've not appointed one visible Christian to your cabinet, a judgeship, or other high level of government? The president paused for a moment and denied that that was the case. And then he explained, I have several religious people in my administration. Vice President Mondale is a very religious man and came from a very religious family. His father was a minister. His father before him was a minister, and his brother is a minister. Now, of course, that is true, but the fact is also that former Vice President Mondale is a leading humanist. He was a major participant in 1970 at the Fifth Congress of the International Humanist and Ethical Union, which was held at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and this was one of the statements that he made on that occasion. Although I have never formally joined a humanist society, I think I'm a member by inheritance. My preacher father was a humanist. In Minnesota, they call them farmer laborites, and I grew up in a very rich diet of humanism from him. All of our family has been deeply influenced by this tradition, including my brother Lester, a Unitarian minister, ethical culture leader, and chairman of the Fellowship of Religious Humanists. And so even President Carter did not understand the issue when he made that statement commending his religious vice president. Humanism is pervasive. It's in all levels of the educational system. It's in all levels of government. There are those who are committed humanists, and there are those who are humanists by ignorance. But it is a very pervasive system and way of thought in our society. Now today I want to take time to talk about three points concerning humanism. I don't like to take time to talk about this subject. To me, it's a profoundly depressing subject. This has been a depressing week for me as I've tried to prepare myself to bring these words to you this morning. But I think it is important for us to take time to talk about it because this is the lie which will deceive the Western world in a few short years in the tribulation period. This concept of man as being independent from God and able to decide for himself what right and wrong is. I want to talk first about the origin of humanism, and in doing this, I'm going to be very, very brief and just give you a few concepts. There are materials written, and you can do more reading if you're interested in this. I think that the attitude of humanism can be traced back to the Garden of Eden, as I've already suggested, independence from God. There was the Greek philosophers who were the first to systemize, systematize humanistic thinking. For example, Protagoras in the 5th century BC made this famous statement 
Man is the measure of all things. That is the essence of humanism. He also said, contradictory assertions are equally true. And that, of course, is in contradiction to what the Word of God says. Two things cannot be truth. The Romans then assimilated the Greek philosophy into their civilization and promoted what historians call Hellenistic culture. When Christianity came along, it, of course, was a mortal enemy to the humanistic philosophy of Rome. But eventually, Christianity, or a form of it, subdued that humanism, and for 1,200 years it had very little impact upon world thinking. And then there came a man by the name of Thomas Aquinas, who lived from 1225 to 1274. Aquinas was a Dominican priest, and it was he who laid the foundation for modern humanism. Francis Schaeffer has written these words concerning Aquinas. He was the outstanding theologian of his day, and his thinking is still dominant in some circles of the Roman Catholic Church. Aquinas held that man had revolted against God and thus was fallen. But Aquinas had an incomplete view of the fall. He thought that the fall did not affect man as a whole, but only in part. In his view, the will was fallen or corrupted, but the intellect was not affected. Thus, people could rely on their own human wisdom, and this meant that people were free to mix the teachings of the Bible with the teachings of non-Christian philosophers. Among the Greek philosophers, Thomas Aquinas relied especially on one of the greatest, Aristotle. Aquinas managed to have Aristotle accepted, so the ancient and non-Christian philosophy was re-enthroned. And so it was Aquinas who began to raise human wisdom, or the ability to reason, to the same level as biblical revelation. Sometime later then, the Renaissance began a construction of modern humanism on this foundation that Aquinas laid. During that period of time, absolutes were replaced by relatives. The focus in education shifted to man. It was man-centered. And even in art, this shift to humanism can be seen, for man is glorified. Take, for example, the obsession with nude art forms. Look at the work of Michelangelo as an example, and you see that man is glorified even in art during the Renaissance period. On the heels of the Renaissance came two influential men, Voltaire, who was the father of the Enlightenment, and Rousseau, who was the father of Romanticism. And these two men are probably the most influential philosophers on our modern educational system. It is impossible to get through a university without reading many of the works of these two men because they are counted as uh, very significant thinkers. Horace Mann in the 19th century and John Dewey in the 20th century are two famous names in education. Both were committed humanists. In fact, John Dewey was an atheist 
and was a member of the American Humanist Association and a signer of the original Humanist Manifesto I in 1933. The thinking of Horace Mann and John Dewey has profoundly affected the educational system in our nation. For the first 100 years of United States history, every college begun had a religious base to it, including Harvard, Princeton, and the Ivy League schools. Then gradually they became anti-God as the educators received their degrees from European universities which had long fallen to humanism. That humanism came to America and today the government school system is probably, and this is a general statement, but I think it is substantiated, the government school system is today the greatest proponent of humanism in America. I want to talk secondly about the tenets of humanism. I get these from Tim LaHaye's book, The Battle for the Mind, which I would commend to any of you if you're interested in reading this. He has some sequel, I think, called Battle for the Family, and another one that will be out soon called The Battle for the School. Commonly, though, humanism claims to have five tenets or teachings. Number one, Humanism believes in atheism. Atheism, of course, is a denial of the existence of God. Not only do they dethrone God, but they enthrone man and deify him. Humanists worship man's wisdom. Descartes, the French philosopher of several hundred years ago, put it this way, I think, therefore I am. And that thinking pervades humanism. Descartes is the one who began the Age of Reason. Dr. Corliss Lamont, whom I will quote several times this morning, is a leading spokesman for humanism in our country and has been for almost 40 years. In his definitive book, The Philosophy of Humanism, he makes this statement regarding the atheistic tenet of humanism. First, humanism believes in a naturalistic metaphysics or attitude toward the universe that considers all forms of the supernatural as myth and that regards nature as the totality of being and as a constantly changing system of matter and energy which exists independently of any mind or consciousness. Other quotes are available to substantiate the fact that humanists are committed to the doctrine of atheism. And atheism is as much a religious belief as theism is. Don't anybody fool you about that. A second tenet of humanism is evolution. Because of atheism, humanists search to explain origins and existence. The theory of evolution in some form has been traced by some people to 2000 BC, to Babylon. But it was popularly revived, of course, by Charles Darwin a little over a hundred years ago. Evolution is supposedly based on scientific proof, and yet after 120 years, it is an unproven theory. There are reputable scientists, some of whom don't even claim to be Christians, who refute the whole concept of the theory of evolution. And yet, the theory of evolution is the presupposed basis 
for secular education in the Western world. It is the bias from which curricula are written. It is a very emotional controversy, this one between evolutionists and creationists. And the reason for that is that the humanistic dogma that man is self-sufficient and independent of God rests on something like the theory of evolution. For if that idea that man simply evolved and has no relation to a supernatural being is discredited, then the whole humanist religion collapses with it. That evolution is a part of humanism, and the two go together, is underscored by a statement of Sir Julian Huxley, who is one of the founders of the American Humanist Association. He defined humanism with these words. I use the word humanist to mean someone who believes that man is just as much a natural phenomenon as an animal or plant that his body, mind, and soul were not supernaturally created, but are products of evolution, and that he is not under the control or guidance of any supernatural being or beings, but has to rely on himself and on his own powers. And so evolution is the second tenet of humanism. The third tenet that I would point out is the tenet of amorality. Immorality teaches that there are no absolute right or wrongs. Out of immorality has come the concept called situation ethics. From this has come the proclaimed concept of free love. That certainly is a misnomer. Rooted in this also is a concept that is popular in educational circles called values clarification, which in fact is morals modification. Amorality is a vicious attack upon the Judeo-Christian ethic upon which our civilization has been based. There are many organizations seeking in subtle ways to inject humanism and amorality into our society. Among those, the American Civil Liberties Union, the American Humanist Association, and an organization called SECUS, Sexual Information and Education Council of the United States. Dr. Mary Cauldron, who is the president of SECUS, was declared the Humanist of the Year in 1974. This is the statement that she makes on sexual experimentation. The adolescent years are, among other things, for learning how to integrate sex usefully and creatively in a daily living. Therefore, we must accept that adolescent sexual experimentation is not just inevitable, but actually necessary for normal development. On premarital sex, she says, an extramarital affair that's really solid might have very good results. And that kind of thinking is being promoted in the materials printed by SECUS, materials used in some of our government schools. This tenet is the basis for the so-called gay 
rights movement, as well as the feminist movement of our day. Betty Friedan, who is one of the leaders of the feminist movement, was declared the humanist of the year in 1975. And Tony Caraballo, who is a past president of the National Organization for Women, made this statement. I don't think the women's movement as such is going to remain a women's movement. I think as more understand what we're really saying, the 10% male membership we now have will begin to swell. I think we'll stop describing ourselves as feminists and begin to describe ourselves as humanists and really begin to deal with the problems of creating a different kind of society. Former Vice President of the National Organization for Women. The goal of humanism is to recognize sexual perversion as normal and as an acceptable part of society. They teach that people are just born that way, which the Bible declares not to be true. Again, I quote Dr. Corliss Lamont. Humanist ethics draws its guiding principles from human experience and tests them in human experience. In other words, human experience is where we get our standards and we test them in human experience. He goes on to say that the truly moral person will be obliged to, quote, discard the outmoded ethics of the past. The merely good is the enemy of the better. The humanist refuses to accept any Ten Commandments or other ethical precepts as immutable and universal laws never to be challenged or questioned. He bows down to no alleged supreme moral authority, either past or present. Connected with this amorality, of course, is abortion, one of the tragedies of uh, America, one of the reasons that I believe God is angry with America. Do you know that in five states today, parents are required to have an abortion if there is a possibility that the baby will be severely retarded? They're required to have an abortion if that possibility exists. And if they refuse, the penalty is that they are liable to legal suit by their children for damages later on. A fourth tenet of humanism is the autonomy of man. This teaches that every person should be free to be happy and make whatever decisions will give him pleasure. Thus, abortion is justified if the baby will somehow inhibit the mother's happiness. Regarding this idea of the autonomy of man, Corliss Lamont again states, Humanism is the viewpoint that men have but one life to lead and should make the most of it in terms of creative work and happiness. The human happiness is its own justification and requires no sanction or support from supernatural sources. That in any case the supernatural, usually conceived of in the form of heavenly gods or mortal heavens, does not exist. And the human beings using their own intelligence and cooperating liberally with one another can build an enduring citadel of peace and beauty upon this earth. The Watts word of humanism is happiness for all humanity in this existence 
as contrasted with salvation for the individual soul in a future existence and the glorification of a supernatural supreme being. And that's where it's at. Last Sunday, there was a, an article in the Minneapolis Tribune, which I will quote to you, entitled, Coroner Finds No Violations in Two Live Births from Abortion. If you are not sickened by this and made angry, something's wrong with you. From Madison, Wisconsin, reported by the Associated Press. Proper procedures were followed in caring for two infants who survived abortions at the University of Wisconsin Hospital and Clinics last week, the Dane County Coroner said Saturday. Hospital personnel, quote, followed procedures right down to the T, close of quote, in resuscitation and life-saving efforts after the infants showed signs of life, Coroner Clyde Chamberlain said after completing autopsies. The girls were delivered Tuesday and Wednesday. Each died within a day after being transferred to Madison General Hospital's Infant Intensive Care Unit. The first infant was about in its 26th week, six and a half months along, and lived nearly a day. The second, about 22 weeks, died after nine hours. Their mothers were 16 and 17 years old. Chamberlain investigated at the request of District Attorney James Doyle, Jr., his report states that the infants died of brain hemorrhage and respiratory distress syndrome due to premature birth by induced abortion. We don't know if there was an error committed in performing the abortions so late in the pregnancy, Chamberlain said. We are assuming all the procedures were done within the confines of the law. Frankly, I doubt very much whether we'll have to pursue it any further. First, they try to kill the babies then they try to keep them alive. The autonomy of man seeking his own pleasure. And abortion, my friends, is only the beginning. A fifth tenet of humanism is a socialistic one-world view. Again, I'm going to quote Dr. Lamont, a member of the American Humanist Association. A truly humanist civilization must be a world civilization. All individuals of all countries are together fellow citizens of our one world and fellow members of our one human family. The Americans, the Russians, the English, the Indians, the Chinese, the Germans, the Africans, and the rest are all part of the same perplexed, proud, and aspiring human race. Humanism is not only a philosophy with a world ideal, but it is an ideal philosophy for the world. The principle around which the United Nations and the International Court of Justice are organized is that the scope of national sovereignty must be curtailed, and the nations must be willing to accept as against what they conceive to be their own self-interest the democratically arrived at decisions of the world community. I believe it was two weeks ago yesterday that World Day was celebrated in Minneapolis and Mayor Don Frazier was among a number of others who declared themselves to be citizens of the world. And this is exactly where they get that, from humanism, the socialistic one-world viewpoint. The goal of humanism is a unilateral disarmament of the nation, of the United States, a world economy, and world government. And that's why there is consistent hostility 
expressed against the free enterprise system and the idea of nationalism. They claim that uh, free enterprise, by the way, is the root of the third world poverty and is therefore a cause of international tension and war. Therefore, do away with free enterprise. To, to summarize these tenets, let me just quote Dr. Tim LaHaye. Would you please discipline yourself to listening, which is sometimes kind of hard to do when someone reads uh, several paragraphs. What we're talking about today, folks, is so important. We're talking about something that is the most dreaded enemy that we face in the United States. It is the avowed foe of our faith. We cannot coexist with it. One or the other will dominate. Dr. LaHaye. Humanism is pro-one world, America second, with an obsession to merge Western democracies, Eastern communism, and third world dictatorships into a one world socialistic state where Plato's dream of three classes of people would be fulfilled. The elite ruling class, the omnipresent military, and then the masses, where there is no difference between sexes. Men and women do the same work and children are wards of the state. Naturally, the humanists will be the elite ruling class. Humanism's premise, man is basically good. His goal should be self-actualization, self-determination, and self-indulgence. Since there is no life after death, it is in man's best interest to find the good life here and now. Do your own thing. Stress human rights. Be lenient to criminals. Humanists advocate sexual activity and promiscuity for the young as well as the old. They advocate free use of pornography and drugs and endorse prostitution, homosexuality, and abortion on demand in the name of human rights. Their guiding principle is do what it is, do what is in your own self-interest, and they are very hostile to Christianity and morality. Humanists hold a religious theory that permits them to explain man's origin without God, thus leaving man accountable to, unaccountable to God. In spite of scientific evidence to the contrary, they insist that man is the highest form of primate. They will not permit, a creation, they will not permit creation to be given equal time in our so-called free public schools. Humanists foster the unscientific religious belief that there is not now and never has been either a supreme being or a personal God who is interested in the affairs of man. Thus the tenets of humanism. Thirdly, I'd like to talk about the religion of humanism. For people, humanism is a religion. Homer Duncan, in his book, says it is the most dangerous religion in America. Why is that so? It is because it is cleverly disguised as only an American way of thinking. It is the American way. And it is so pervasive. Therefore, it is difficult to separate it from the truth. But humanism is not a philosophy, nor is there such a thing as scientific humanism, which is one of their favorite terms. Humanism is not scientific, and Dr. Leahy in his book, Battle for the Mind, goes into depth to prove that point. Lloyd Moraine, former president of the American Humanist Association, states, Down through the ages, men have been seeking a universal religion or way of life. Humanism shows promise of becoming a great world faith. Humanists are content with fixing their attention on this life and on this earth, 
Theirs is a religion without a God, divine revelation, or sacred scriptures. In the Humanist Manifesto 1, nine times humanism is called a religion. I'll give you one quote. Humanism is a philosophical, religious, and moral point of view, as old as human civilization itself. It has its roots in classical China, Greece, and Rome. It is expressed in the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, in the Scientific Revolution, and in the 20th century. And in 1961, in a Supreme Court decision, Justice Hugo L. Black made this observation as part of his legal opinion. Among religions in this country, which do not teach what would generally be considered a belief in the existence of God, are Buddhism, Taoism, ethical culture, secular humanism, and others. And so even the Supreme Court of the United States has recognized the fact that humanism is in fact a religion. We're on a battleground today with a foe who will not be satisfied with anything but our absolute destruction. What is our need? How can we respond to this? We get emotionally stirred about it. We feel deeply about our convictions and how they are threatened by the humanist religion. But what is our need? How can we respond? Let me give you some suggestions. First, be aware of the lie in its 20th century masquerade. Look for for clue phrases that will tip you off to the positions of organizations, churches, and people that they are part of the humanistic religion. Be aware of the lie and begin to expose it. Secondly, be prayerful, for this is a spiritual warfare that we are in. This is not one philosophy against another. It's not one way of life against another. It is a spiritual warfare between the forces of Satan and the forces of God. And therefore, we need to attack this problem primarily with prayer. But friends, it cannot stop there. I believe that God would have us to an extent to be the answer to our own prayers. But I believe that thirdly, we need to be vocal. I believe that we need to write or call our congressman or the president, the governor, our legislators, the mayor, the city council, and let them know where we stand. I believe that we need to write letters to the editor of our newspapers, particularly those in the Twin Cities, to express the Christian viewpoint so that there be some balance, hopefully, on the editorial page. I believe that we need to call radio talk shows to support the Judeo-Christian ethic and the teachings of the Bible. I believe that we need to write sponsors of programs, too, to let them know that we are distressed with their money, which is supporting the humanist religion and undermining our freedoms in this land. I know that there are those who feel that that is not the right thing to do. In fact, we hear a lot of talk today about the Coalition for Better Television being so unfair in asking sponsors to, um, to not underwrite certain programs and then boycotting sponsors which proceed to do so. 
And yet, uh, the very people who are decrying the use of that method are the ones who have used it for years themselves. The National Organization for Women, for example, called a boycott against whole states that would not support the ERA. But now suddenly it's wrong for the other side to use the very similar tactic. Consistency is a virtue of the gods, somebody said. There's something fourth that we can do, and that is be courageous. For you see, we are tempted to be silent. We are bullied too easily by these people. And they make full use of this. In 1979, in Los Angeles, at the National Convention of the National Organization for Women, delegates were warned of an awakening moral majority in America. And uh, they were challenged. These delegates were challenged to go home and threaten churches that said anything with lawsuits because of the separation of church and state. A statement, by the way, that's found nowhere in the Constitution. Last week I mentioned in the second service, and I would say it again to you here who were not in the second service last week, that one-third of all the states that originally ratified our Constitution had state religions. That was not considered to be unconstitutional. They had state religions. The point of the Constitution was the federal government was not to establish religion. The First Amendment to the Constitution was not intended to silence the church. It was intended to keep the, the federal government out of the churches. And you can see how that is being twisted and distorted in these days beyond all identification with what it was intended to mean. The American Civil Liberties Union, Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, which used to be a fairly decent organization, which was taking a tremendous turn to the left, are organizations that are legally challenging uh, religious organizations that lift their voices against humanism. No Christian should be involved in them or support them in any way as far as I'm concerned. And the fifth thing that we need to do is to be involved. Now, as a church, we cannot endorse a candidate. We should not. But we as individuals can support and work for pro-moral candidates. And there are some, even one who's running for governor in this state of Minnesota. I believe that we have an obligation to do what we can to support those candidates. And then, of course, to vote for the candidates of our choice that will uphold the Judeo-Christian ethic and the position of morality. And I think we need to work to expose the amoral candidates and incumbents and work to see them not removed, uh, to see them removed rather from their offices. Humanism teaches that man is his own savior, but humanism is wrong. Human, humanism is the lie. And it may be possible that you're a very religious person, but somehow you have been sucked into that lie to the extent that you believe that in some way or another you're going to be able to work your own way to heaven. My friend, you're tragically wrong. The Bible declares that we can only be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. As our memory verse this morning said, now there is a righteousness from God through faith in, the Lord, in, in Jesus Christ to all who will believe. 
If you've not placed your faith in him for the salvation of your soul, that is your need today. I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Revelation for a moment. chapter 21 we have the creation of the new heaven and new earth this is after the judgments are all finished and it says in verse 8 Revelation 21 but the cowardly the unbelieving the vile the murderers the sexually immoral those who practice magic arts the idolaters, and all, what? Liars. Their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. My friend, that is the destiny of the lie. And all who choose to turn from the truth to the lie will one day go to this place the Bible calls the eternal lake of fire or burning sulfur. They're to be separated from God and from righteousness and from truth for all of eternity. The lie will end up in hell and all who follow it. The victory is already ours through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are more than conquerors through him. The skirmishes that we are involved in now are very important, but let us rejoice that the ultimate victory has already been established in Jesus Christ. Knowing that, though, and having that kind of assurance and optimistic hope, let us not back away from the skirmishes of the moment and think them to be unimportant, for they're very important for ourselves and for our children and our children's children. We have an obligation to God to be children of the light and to expose the works of darkness, Ephesians chapter 5. Let us be faithful and courageous in doing that. Let's pray. We talk about the lie and it's kind of a philosophical ideal. And yet, dear friend, sitting here listening to me this morning, it's possible that you as an individual, as we've stated, are following the lie, that you've not yet repented of sin and bowed your knee and received Christ as your Savior. And today you're still heading toward that lake of fire, toward hell, because you are living independently of God. Will you trust Christ today? Will you receive him into your life and be saved? My Christian friend, you know it's possible for you and me to live like humanists too. To, as it were, dethrone God in our lives so that he does not have the preeminence. It's possible for us to have our priorities all screwed up so that we, practically speaking, are humanists. If that would describe the way you're living today, your lifestyle, then as a Christian, there's need today for you to pray a prayer of repentance and commit yourself again to right priorities and to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for the victory. Thank you that you've challenged our hearts today. Give us grace to follow through with these practical suggestions. 
But help us also to make the spiritual decisions that need to be made today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like for us to sing in closing.